Welcome to episode one of the Rediscovery of Me Life Stories podcast. Today's episode is all about never giving up. Yeah, the blindness was coming. Cut a long story short, four weeks later, totally blind, irreparable damage. Uh, retinas had been attacked by toxoplasmosis. Wow. Uh, so the consultant said, very sorry, there's nothing we can do. You're going to be completely blind the rest of your life. It's time to be your best version of you. No fluff, no nonsense, only practical ways for you to be your own extraordinary. We learn from the real stories of real people who've been there and survived the life challenges that we all face. Remember, one person's story can be someone else's survival guide. Welcome to the rediscovery of me. I'm your host, Holly Hartley. Well, I can't believe I finally made it here. A huge welcome to episode one of the Rediscovery of Me Life Stories podcast. To say that I've suffered from a touch of self-doubt and imposter syndrome whilst pulling this show together would be a bit of an understatement. But hell, we've all got to start somewhere, so here I am. So what I really need you to do is give my soul a bit of soothing. Please make sure that you click subscribe, leave a review, share on your social media channels, anything that you can do to boost the reach of the podcast. More subscribers helps us to grow so that more people can find it and we can encourage them to share their stories with us too. So without further ado, let's get on with today's episode. And I promise you today you are in for a real inspirational treat. My guest on today's show is an ordinary guy with an extraordinary story, living regular life and working in auto body repair at BMW. His life was turned upside down when in 2008, at the age of 39, a rare condition caused him to go blind in a matter of weeks, totally out of the blue. Today, he is a man on a mission. He's Britain's only blind professional woodturner in July 2019, becoming the first blind person to be accepted onto the register of professional turners. He travels around the country giving public demonstrations, speaking about his story. He also has his own YouTube channel and podcast. And if you've heard him speak, you'll know what amazing people both he and his wife Nicola are. His goal, and I quote, is to inspire and motivate disabled and abled-bodied people to demonstrate that anything is possible. If you're not dead, you can't quit. Whenever you feel like you want to give up, just keep on turning. He is the blind woodturner, Mr Chris Fisher. Hi, Chris. Hello. Well, let's start at the beginning then. Tell us a little bit about your background and where you grew up. Well, to quote Morrissey, I was born and raised in uh, in Eccles, uh, so a, a full, you know, Salford lad and Mancunian, and came from a great mother and father. Uh, my father was an engineer uh, and ended up having his own heating engineering business, but he sadly passed away in 1991 from cancer. My mum, she remarried. She now lives in Cyprus, wow. but they're about to come back here mm -hmm. because my stepdad, he's had skin cancer, although it's not terminal. They've pretty much got it sorted. So they're that. moving back. Uh, so, yeah, I've got uh, one sibling, an elder brother who's an architect, wow. uh, lives in Hereford near ross on Wye. Yeah, great, great childhood, great brother, great mum and dad, and... Yeah, Eccles was a cool place back in the day uh, and a lot of fond memories about it. And as I evolved into a young adult, you know, realised that I didn't really want to fly a desk. Mm -hmm. 
my brother more academic, but still very talented. Uh, and my father great with his hands. Uh, it's sort of like genetically programmed into me to be quite good with my hands and pragmatic and things. So, yeah, yeah I, I'd always had practical jobs in engineering and the auto body industry and things like that. So, yeah, it's evolved into what it is now. But really, my background is typical, you know, cheeky lad from Salford and a regular guy, just a regular guy like with a said. regular job. Yeah. So describe to us, as best as you can, the events of, of going blind and how that happened. Well, it was October, late October 2008, and it was a Sunday morning. And you never forget, it's like, you know, where were you when you found out that JFK had been shot yeah, things? Yeah. It was a nice, pleasant day. Woke up with really blurred eyesight and I thought, oh, that's strange. And But you could see at that point? I, well, I could still see. I'd seen perfectly well up until the day before and then woke up with really blurred eyesight and it was like looking through layers and layers of cling film or vaseline wow and was so, it painful no not at all no but it was it was really weird and I, yeah i was saying to myself well maybe it'll clear up in an hour or two and you know i've just got up and maybe it's just an infection or start a conjunctivitis or something but the following day it was it was still there and it hadn't got any better so it was like do i go to the doctor or do go, do i go to the optometrist yeah and i thought i'll go to the optometrist he's got all the kit yeah you know so i went to the optometrist and the optometrist he shone a, t uh, a light in my eye and my pupils didn't contract they were non-responsive so he said well i'll try some drops see if i can get them to dilate and again non-responsive so he did manage to have a look at the back of my eyes and around my retinas on both eyes were swollen. So he said, you need to go to the eye hospital. So we went the following day, still no improvement in the, in the blurred eyesight. And at that point, did he alert you to this being potentially a life-changing situation? No, but the fact that he said, you know, you need to go straight away, you know, it was sort of like you don't have to be a genius to work out that something's going on. So... Went the following day and they had a look at the eye hospital in Manchester and, you know, they did say it could have been early onset of macular degeneration and there's a form of arthritic blindness called uvitis. Right. They thought it could have been that. Uh, so they said, well, take these drops, go home, come back tomorrow. So that happened. I was there every day for a few days and then the blindness started coming in the first week. And were you off work at this point? Yeah, and obviously you can't drive or anything like that. It, so yeah. at that point, it was that pronounced that you mm. weren't able to drive No, anymore. no, no, no. Like I say, it was like looking through really dense fog or Vaseline. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, the blindness was coming. Cut a long story short, four weeks later, totally blind, irreparable damage. Uh, retinas had been attacked by toxoplasmosis. Wow. Uh, so the consultant said, very sorry, there's nothing we can do. You're going to be completely blind the rest of your life and uh, we'll get in touch now with the local authorities social workers and sensory teams and sort of like pass your care and rehab over to them so then the machinery takes over really and so you your uh, social workers and sensory workers come round and it's you know this is how you make a sandwich and, you know this is how you make a cup of tea without burning yourself and you get a little liquid indicators that you it, pop over the side of the cup that beep so it seems like an incredibly fast journey to have mm. traveled were, were you aware 
before you it actually took hold permanently that you were going to go blind or did were you yeah well when the blindness started coming in those, was that intermittent or no it was it was continual and the blindness was getting bigger and bigger pretty much day by day right what do you mean by that getting bigger and bigger well to if if you were to let me just think back now so yeah you've got your field of vision mm -hmm. but then a part of the field of vision is gone and it's just like it, it, there's a, a, a smudge that you cannot see through at all. Wow. And that was getting bigger and bigger day by day. So it's almost like, if as I'm looking forward now, mm. there would be an obstruction that I just could not see through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and that just got bigger and bigger until, it, you know, the whole of my eyesight had gone. And you say that you're, I think the phrase that you used was black blind. Mm. Yeah, so I'm, I can't see anything at all. So there no are shadows, no, no, no. So there are people, obviously, there's people with varying degrees of visual impairment, mm -hmm. partial sight, and you know, there are people with no vision at all. So I have no vision at all. So, yeah, it was the rehab and learning to use your long cane, which is the long white stick that the blind and visually impaired have, getting training with that. And yeah, the first year was really busy. I can uh, imagine. Yeah, and there's I mean, lots to do. Give us a little bit of an insight into kind of everyday life, how it affected your everyday life. Well, it's it's been plunged into this world of darkness and everything you used to do so easily and that what a sighted person takes for granted, everything everything in your life becomes a considered action. The most easiest of tasks, brushing your teeth now becomes a considered action and there is a process to go through especially in the early days mm. like you trying to put toothpaste on the bristles of your toothbrush mm -hmm. you'll miss your toothbrush and just squirt it straight into the sink so it's applying it to your fingertip in the early days and rubbing your finger on the bristles yeah all that sort of stuff you know and, and are you taught this or do you, do you yeah no you know the the sensory teams were amazing i have to say yeah and i can still remember maureen who was my sensory worker at the time yeah absolutely wonderful and they, they take you through of course they can't show you everything they're not mm -hmm. going to be there every day for the rest of your life they give you the basic skills and tools to get you uh, functioning at a very basic level. But, you know, to start, you know, having some independence back and you get some, obviously, some gadgets and talking and buzzing things to help you, like I say, make a cup of tea and, and whatnot. But really, it's the days have gone where, you know, the blind would be in a home and have everything done for them. Mm -hmm. And it's quite right now. It should be, look, you know, it's a bum deal, but mm -hmm. it is what it is. And... We've, we've taught you the basics. You have to crack on now on your own. How, how does it work? And this is, this is something <clears throat> I find it quite a difficult question to ask, really. How does it work with the brain? Do you still, I don't know if this is a silly thing to say, still see pictures in your mind? Yeah, it's called memory map. And because I was sighted, I have a very good memory map. And I've always had a very good memory. And being blind will help you develop a very good memory very quickly because you rely on it. So yes, if you said to me, I've got a a red, a red Bentley. Yeah. I know, if only. Yeah. <laughs> I know what a red Bentley is. I don't, Chris. One yeah, day. Yes, one day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Onwards and upwards. So yeah, but and if people say, oh, you know, I've oh, oh, well, they describe anything, you know, I get the memory map. 
So it's like, you know, when you're listening to an audio book or you're reading a good book and yeah, you get those mental images yeah, of yeah, yeah, the character yeah. and, you know, in yeah. your mind, the character looks that way and the car he's driving looks that way and, you know, the restaurant they went to or, you know, the, the whatever in the book. You yeah. are making these pictures. So <laughs> I do that all day. And when you meet people, you, you conjure up an image of what they look like. And... Well, you sort of get an idea, but, but Nicola, uh, who's... At, you know at my side you know a yeah. lot yeah uh she'll say oh yeah she looks this way and she's that tall and things like that i can okay. tell people's height because the voice is coming from either above me or yeah. at me or below me so i can work people's height out quite well but nicola will say oh yeah like nicola described people at uh, the maker central exhibition you know oh yeah he looks this way and that way yeah yeah oh, so. and you know you, you've mentioned Nicola as a really important person in your life I have a very very handsome man stood next to me here who is also really important in your life your beautiful dog Bamba yeah he's my guide dog uh he's three years and four months old full German shepherd guide dog so I was paired with him October 2017 I used to have a support worker or PAs as they're called now right. so yeah I had a support worker Dean for eight years Dean had to leave to get full-time work applied for a guide dog went through the assessments got paired with Bamba did the training uh, and here we are now nearly three years on and we're such a great team he is a genius mm. very cheeky <laughs> when he's not harnessed up and he's not working but he is so clever he watches what I'm doing all the time he knows I'm blind and, you know, the stuff he knows when we're out working. That's a, such a fascinating concept that the mm. dog knows you're blind. Yeah, yeah, he knows there's something wrong. And it's, I've I've been to friends' homes and they've got dogs. Yeah. And they'll behave completely differently. And sort of like friends will say, he's never done that before. My dog is just sat there staring at you, looking at you. They know. Wow. They can pick up on things. But lots of assistance dogs have this ability to sense seizures and... Uh, anxiety and PTSD and combat veterans yeah, and all yeah. sorts of stuff. So, yeah, yeah they, they've got an amazing sense. This, this is yet another argument that I can formulate for telling my husband why it is important that we are, in fact, going to get a dog. So, Indeed. So, so thank you for the, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, to complete the, the happy home, you need a dog. Absolutely, Chris. You and I are exactly on the same side here. So, quite a personal question now. Mm. Throughout the process, those, those four weeks, were you afraid... No, not really. I wasn't at the time. The day that I got told that there's nothing we can do and this is this is it now for you, Chris, the rest of your life, I cried, you know, mm -hmm. because, you know, I was a, a motorcyclist, you know, I was learning to fly, I was studying for my private pilot's licence. I'd obviously worked in the motor industry so, and was able to drive some beautiful cars and, you know, all of that you lose instantly and it's mm -hmm. a lot to lose and... Mm -hmm. My my older brother, he came and he, he took my motorcycle, a big, very powerful Honda, wow. and he took it away in the back of his trailer. You know, so those sort of things are very, very hard to deal with. And I suppose, in a way, a, a bereavement, perhaps, a grieving to be done? Well, it is, and the, the counselling that I later went on to have with the RNIB, it's called yeah. bereavement counselling. Right. Uh, such a huge part of the brain is used in processing what we see and everything we do our eyesight plays a part in the 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 brain struggles to cope and in in a lot of cases 
you go into some sort of meltdown, which I which I did mm-hmm. ultimately. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I did have the bereavement counselling. So I know when we before we we've met today, you mentioned to me about you know having these really bad days. Mm. What was a bad day like? A bad day was me really considering how I could check out. Right. If I'm completely honest, uh, I had a seven-year-old son, mm-hmm. obviously married. Uh, but at my very, very worst, if I was a single man, I'd have ended it. And it was your family that stopped that. Yes, it was, and, and me, and me wanting to be still be around my family mm-hmm. and close friends. Yeah, the worst days, and they were very, very, very. Uh, well, there was a lot of them. That's what I'm trying to say. And this went on for about four years. And obviously, the severity of the anxiety lessened as as the years went on. But nausea, not just feeling nauseated, but actually being sick. Really? Yeah. If if someone was, you know, coming round to the house, like a social worker, <clears throat> I'd... I'd be vomiting. And would, would that be as, as a result of the anxiety yeah, or yes, some yeah. of the other symptoms that I know, you know, sometimes happen? You you mentioned to me hallucinations and muscle spasms. Would the, the nausea It's come? all anxiety. It's all right. anxiety and panic attacks. Uh, and having someone to come round to the house and you don't know them, you can't see them. You know, in the early days, I was just terrified. And uh, hallucinations, which in fairness, the hallucinations I sort of enjoyed because they were very interesting and me being, you know, uh, a thinker and I did very well at school and I could have gone on to uni. It's just I didn't want to, you know, like my dad and my brother. But I found them really interesting and to be in the kitchen and suddenly see a load of cutlery spread out on the worktop and go to feel for it and then it snapped back into blindness. Wow. Uh, And so were they quite short, the hallucinations? Yeah, yeah, four or five seconds at a time. And, you know, I'd see birds flying at my head in the garden. And it was really vivid and so real and then snapped back into blindness. And I found them interesting. They didn't freak me out. And were they triggered by the circumstance or situation that you found yourself in at the time? Yeah, that's the brain trying to process now that you have no sight and it used to see you know, and process what you saw. So it's the brain really going into some sort of mode is the best way to put it and trying to piece things together and it manifests in some, in sometimes, you know, as hallucinations. So yeah, I sort of enjoyed them and thought, wow, that was really freaky, but yeah, I (laughs) kind of enjoyed it. (laughs) And have they stopped now? I've probably not had one for probably about a year now. Right. But the other side effects that came about from the anxiety were were shocking uh muscle spasms not being able to sleep hot sweats again you know mentioning the nausea and things going out with my support worker at the time and having a huge panic attack out in the trafford center say yeah uh, and saying dean you've got to take me home i feel so ill and you know uh, what if I need the toilet? What if I don't get to the toilet in time? What if I trip or fall yeah. over something? You know, and all these things are going round in your head. Partly logical, yeah. partly illogical. But yeah, that went on for four years and it was shocking. So how did you get through, Chris? Well, it was just uh, the bereavement counselling. The doctor put me on medication as well mm-hmm. to combat the anxiety. And it's just... 
every day trying to do something that yesterday made you feel a bit uneasy or sick, but having a go at it again, always having to push myself. A lot of the times when I was having a bad day, I'd I'd either go to bed early or lie on the couch Mm -hmm. and just feel really terrible. But slowly but surely over the years and with the counselling and the medication and pushing yourself and having people around you say, look, Chris, nothing's going to happen. We're here, you know. We're not going to let you get knocked over or trip over anything. And, you know, gradually you begin to think, well, they're right. What have you learned about people? What's this experience taught you about humanity? That you you quickly learn who your friends are, which is a bit of a cliche, but that's true. Mm -hmm. And if you've got a great support network of family and friends, they can get you through anything. Mm -hmm. And don't uh, try to do it on your own. As soon as you start feeling that things are going astray, get some help, you know, and unload what you're feeling and share it with people that you're close to. And also never, ever give up. Mm. And even through the the worst days, you can come through it. It's not easy, and Mm. I won't sugarcoat it for anybody. Completely blind, it's really hard. Well, even to, you know, become visually impaired and partially sighted, it's really, really hard. I mean, people that have, you know, they're short-sighted or Mm -hmm. long-sighted and wear glasses, you know, they can struggle if they've, you know, they can't find the glasses and they want to read something. Mm. So imagine you've got a condition that cannot be corrected. So it's that all day, just blurred eyesight all day. It's a huge thing. But sadly, what you've been through is not a unique experience. You know, I think those are really wise words for other people who Mm. might be going through a a similar experience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Just never give up. And it it is going to be really tough and hard. Be prepared for that. But yeah, definitely share uh, what you're feeling with friends and ones. Seek professional help. I had counselling with the RNIB, 12 sessions. It really, really helped to talk with a trained professional. You, You get through it. Trust me, you get through it, and it'll it'll be so worth it when you do get through it. You know, you spoke about your past and about your dad and your brother Mm -hmm. and being an engineer and, you know, being really skilled with your hands and, you know, not wishing to, again, be cliched or stereotyped, but very kind of masculine background, and Mm -hmm. here you are in a really vulnerable situation. Yeah, I think that's got a lot to do with with the anxiety, being very gung-ho, a biker, you know, and then to be like a toddler again. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've used that to describe being blind to people. It's like being a toddler again. You have to learn everything again. Mm-hmm. Very vulnerable, very sensitive, scared. Mm-hmm. All these things that were the complete opposite of what I should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's what a horrendous ride and... It's it's great now to be back mm. to ninety nine percent of yeah. the old Chris that's cheeky and <laughs> likes to have a go at everything. Finds time to be silly and crack jokes as yeah. often as I can, and you know, back to enjoying life now. You know, and I wouldn't change who I am at all now. I have said it, uh, and I've been interviewed before, and I don't want my eyesight back. That's an incredibly bold thing to say. I do not want my eyesight back. You know, I've worked so hard to get to where I am, being uh, a blind blind man in the 21st century. I don't think I could cope with, you know, another journey like that. Yeah. So, no, this is, I think, who I was meant to be. 
Does it define you? It does now. Yeah, yeah. It, and, you know, Chris Fisher, the Blindwood Turner, I've got friends and uh, supporters, you know, all over the world. Mm. It does define me. And of these thousands of people that follow me and support me, there's a little bit of them in mm. me now. Mm. And I, I want to do things to make them proud mm. and inspire them and motivate them. And everybody goes through tough times mm. in their life. It's, n it's not always to do with disability. And, you know... I, I have this warrior attitude and being of Danish descent and loving the Viking thing. <laughs> I noticed the swords in the corner. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about <laughs> them in a bit. But yeah, everybody can have that warrior attitude. It's not about running around a field anymore trying to cut people's heads off. Making sure, and you were telling me the story about your daughter, mm. you know, recently breaking her arm. You know, you cared for your daughter, stayed with her. Mm. That's that warrior attitude. Mm. You know, doing what it takes to rise above a problem mm. you make me out of work struggling to get the bills paid the car's broken down not giving up that warrior warrior mentality mm. and mm. you can apply that to everything and i do absolutely you know so i'm a, a modern wood turning warrior i love it yeah i think we, we, we can all learn so much from you chris a curious question here that mm. when i um, was speaking to a friend of mine said suggested i ask is it true that your other senses compensate when you lose your eyesight? Yes. They do not physically improve. It's, you don't grow another eardrum or, you know, or an extra, <laughs> yeah. uh, an extra nostril somewhere. <laughs> but, Thankfully. Yeah, because that would be a weird look. <laughs> but quickly, and it happens very quickly. I couldn't put a date on it, but it happens really quickly that you start relying on your other senses. So we're talking about your sense of touch, mm. your olfactory sense mm -hmm. and your auditory sense. Mm -hmm. So you get in tune with them very, very quickly and start to rely on them and start realising that there is a wealth of information that you can gather from these other senses. I think perhaps the only thing I could compare that to, um, I, I've started dabbling a tiny little bit in mindfulness mm -hmm. and sitting quietly and mm. trying to focus on different sounds. Mm. And actually, it's amazing how much is going on in the world that mm. we don't even notice. So mm. I'm assuming that you smell and hear so much more than the rest of us don't notice. Yeah, if Nicola walks into the room with eyeshadow on, I smell it. You smell eyeshadow. Yeah. So people will say, yeah, I can do that. You know, if you put your nose into the, the, the palate, you know, of your wife or your girlfriend and smell it, yeah, of course you can smell it. I can smell it when she walks in the room. I wow. can tell the way Nicola is breathing if she wants me to pass her the tea towel. Freaky stuff like that. <laughs> That's a, a secure marriage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and also uh, there's uh, blind people now that are using echolocation. Right. Uh, so there are completely blind people that can either click with the mouths or click with the fingers, as a dolphin does. Yeah, it of gets course. this this uh, rebound sonar echolocation. There's a blind kid in America, and he can ride his skateboard like a pro and slalom in between obstacles by clicking. Wow. The lad's completely blind. So I have actually started clicking. So that sound changed then as I moved towards my cup. I don't know if you're noticing it. Yeah, I do notice that. Hear that change? Ever so slightly. Yeah. Well, I'm beginning now to relate that change to an object. 
So I am starting because I'm very curious about it. And Bamba's just gate crashed the party again. <laughs> right, Bamba. Bam. It's because I'm clicking. So, yeah, I'm starting to try and... Because I think it's fascinating. And wow, that is really cool. So that's a new skill that you're learning. I'm trying to teach myself how to echolocate by clicking my fingers. I've what? tried the mouth click like a dolphin, but I just end up drooling. <laughs> I think it's my overbite. <laughs> or maybe it's just your age. Yeah, or maybe it's the fact that I'm from Salford. <laughs> Should we talk about wood turning? Yeah. <laughs> so you say that you took up your wood turning after four years. And you wanted to make a vampire steak. Yeah. I mean, before we even talk about why you took up wood, wood turning, why the heck did you need a vampire steak? Well, the, the simple... You're in, the, you're in North Manchester, for God's sake. Well, exactly, that's why you need one. So, uh, <laughs> a lot of bloodsuckers in Salford. So, I love horror films. Right. Always have done. Used to sit up on a Friday night with some chips from the local chip shop with my mum, the Wolfman. The mummy, you know, all yeah. the, you know, the early Draculas with Bella Lugosi and Lon Chaney and Boris Karloff. Loved them. And then later on the Hammer House of Horrors. So and we're talking vintage. I love the vintage stuff with my mum. I'd sit up on a Friday night watching those. And then later on, I saw The Exorcist when I was way too young to watch it and was fascinated by it. Really love the vampire genre, you know, and even though I love the classics with Christopher Lee and things like that, I do like my vampire films to be not of the, the Buffy genre. <laughs> you know, high school, college kids, you know. I like my vampire films to have a bit of angst. <laughs> anyway, I wanted a vampire steak. Didn't want a whittle one right. with, with just a, a knife and a bit of, you know, a, a bit of wood out in the garden. I wanted something a bit more Hollywood than that, a bit more artistic. So I thought, hmm, yes, how do I do this? So I thought, well, wood turning's the way to go. I'd never been a wood turner. I think it had been phased out pretty much from schools. And even though our school still did metalwork and woodwork, mm -hmm. and this is a shame, I think, and you might know this because uh, you're in education. Only the uh, less academic kids got to go and play with the wood and metal. And I think that's a shame. I think that has changed a little bit now. The new mm. curriculum in those, mm. you know, technology areas is so demanding. Yeah. And the standards expected, I mm. do think that's changed. And, you know, I've worked with young people from across the academic ability spectrum mm. who've taken up those GCSEs. So mm -hmm. just to reassure you of that. Oh, that's cool. So, you know, uh, yeah, unfortunately that wasn't open to me because I was in the higher forms. You know, we were doing, you know, physics and French and a bit of Latin and things like that. Mm. So I didn't really get to dabble in that area as a kid anyway listen to youtube for 600 hours wow and there was a couple of really good hobby wood turners that i connected with and they described their videos very well so i could build up mental imagery regarding <clears throat> the equipment and machinery needed tools and techniques health and safety finishing projects so, so these weren't even programs specifically created for people such as yourself it was no, a general just a general video uploaded onto someone's youtube channel to show people how this guy in his workshop you know has this amazing hobby of turning wood so i listened to 600 hours wow and i treated it very seriously i did treat it like attending college yeah every day laptop listen 
assimilate. Yeah. No point writing anything down because I can't read it back to myself. So it was just all assimilation by the mind. And 600 hours later, bought a lathe, purchased some tools, got some wood and taught myself just by touch and the mental images. Incredible. Do you think that the wood turning was actually about more than just creating the vampire state? Was the wood churn turning something that you actually needed in your life at that point, a kind of passion, a new hobby? Yeah, it was It was a time It was a time for me to kick life in the ass again. Yeah. And start to get back to being the, you know, the Chris that had sort of like been left on the side for quite a few years so it was a huge challenge it was dangerous that was a draw to me as well the that danger yeah uh you know this was something where you'd really have to have your wits yeah, about you yeah. and be on you know on top of your game i was going to ask you about that because mm. I, I read somewhere that you, you you said that technology plays a big part in keeping you safe because I would be terrified of trying wood turning because I'd be scared of losing my hand. Uh, well, because I have to stop so often with my turning to feel the the project develop to reinforce the mental imagery that I've got, that makes me safe having to stop. And there's a lot of, uh, well, most sighted wood turners, they will leave the work spinning on the lathe while they reposition the tool rest and things like that. I can't do that because yeah. I could inadvertently hit the project with the tool rest and get into a spot of bother. So I'm constantly stopping the lathe to readjust, to feel, to reevaluate. Yeah. So I am actually inherently very safe. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, we've got a number of, of, of your pieces here on the table and we'll talk about you, your work in a moment, but mm -hmm. wood, I mean, even to a sighted person like myself, is something that naturally I want to reach over and touch because mm. it's something very sensory. It's a tactile. It's yep. a beautiful material to work with. Mm -hmm. But actually, it's so much more than that, isn't it? Because it smells amazing. Yeah, it smells. And my my sense of smell now is playing an even greater role in, in helping me determine what, a, what species it is. Mm -hmm. And also the feel and the texture of the grain, whether or not it's an open grain or something quite smooth. So these do play a part in me with my wood recognition. And can you identify woods by smell? And yeah, I'm getting much better now, yeah. yeah. And uh, it's just a process. It'd be a lot quicker, of course, if I could, you know, look at a web page or get a book, because there are books out there that have got all wood species in and you can have a look at a, a picture and, yeah, that'd be exponentially quicker. But I have to do things a different way. So, but yeah, it's another part of the journey that I'm enjoying, you know, and I sniff everything. People think I'm a right weirdo. <laughs> but I, 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 I get a lot of everything. <laughs> yeah, I get, yeah, everything. Uh, I, uh, I get a lot of information and it helps my knowledge expand yeah. by sniffing and feeling. So, yeah, wood is very warm. It's tactile. It's sensory. And I'm becoming more... And I want to become more of a wood-turning artist. It's great doing something that's utilitarian and round and brown, mm -hmm. you know. But I could do six round and brown bowls and they'll all feel the same. But if I carve and put some texture on some mm -hmm. and make them different and unique, it becomes very sensory and hugely tactile. And it's just great for my mental... Uh, imagery and again you've got the challenge there of using different equipment and tools to carve textures and then when I add colour many people say why do you colour Chris and you can't see 
good question. Mm. There's no such thing as a bad question. I do it because it's a challenge. Mm. It's another process and skill I've got to learn. It's another string to my bow. And there's lots of people out there that love wood that has got an element of texture and colour to it. And because mm. I'm a professional now and I'm trying to do stuff to sell, mm-hmm. some people go, oh, wow, look at that effect. And, mm. you know, there's, I, I always try to leave an element of the natural wood there to prove that it is wood, you know, uh, but uh, a big part of the bowl can be textured and coloured. Well, you know, you, you say that people are surprised. You know, I'm, we're sat here now with some of your pieces that you were used from your... July 2019 assessment mm. and I am salivating at what's in front of me you know as a, as a geography teacher I, I see a bowl here that is just absolutely beautiful because it reminds me so much of an ammonite you know it's mm. absolutely stunning tell us about some of the pieces we've got on the table here in front well, of us well that piece you're feeling that was recently done at a demonstration that I did in Huddersfield mm. I was the guest turner at a wood turning club in Huddersfield a couple of weeks ago so that was the piece that I did. So yeah, that's that was turned, the bowl was turned and then I power carve it and colour it. But uh, yes, it's almost like an ammonite mm-hmm. and the the company that sponsored me there based on near the Jurassic Coast. Right, very fishy. You know, the guy that taught me this technique, Nick Agar, who's one of the world's greatest wood turners, he was from down there, but he's just relocated to America, mm-hmm. the epicentre of wood turning really now. Right, okay. So... He taught me that technique and it's it is, it's lovely, it's tactile. And the fact that I'm <clears throat> blind, it ends up being more of an organic form. Yeah. He's instructed lots of wood turners that were are, are still engineers and they're trying to do the, the carving so yeah. precisely and it yeah. just looks clinical. Mm. Whereas you get some blind guy on the end of it and, you know, some of the flutes in the carving mm. start to wander off a bit. He said, I love that. He says it makes it even more organic and natural. So, yeah, mm. you've got it absolutely spot on, Holly. That's the look and feel I'm going for. Mm. Jurassic, ancient, with that piece you like. And then this yeah. other one here I'm holding is this raised platter mm. with the colour... Yeah, again, looks really old. Yeah, so that's a a new range of metallic paints that have been developed for woodworkers and wood turners. So that's elm, so it was a raised platter. So rather than hollow it out deep like a proper bowl, Mm -hmm. it's more like of a a raised dish. Mm -hmm. And in most of my pieces underneath, I put my little decorative spiral, which is my maker's mark. That's beautiful. So, you know, don't neglect the bottom of a piece underneath just because it's sat on a table or a sideboard. People want to pick that up, turn over and go, wow, you know, Mm. there's even an area and a point of interest there, you know, and I've taken the time to give every part of the project as much love and passion as I can. Whenever I've seen pieces like this at a craft fair, Mm -hmm. I've always been, not put off, but I've always thought, I don't know what I would use that for because I've always been scared to use things that are created Mm -hmm. this beautifully. It's beautifully painted. It's got a polished interior to it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's something that I would use if I had friends around. But can you actually use them or are they meant to sit on the side? It's entirely up to you. You own that. You know, if you buy a piece, it's your piece. Mm-hmm. Go nuts. You know, if somebody wanted it, like the, some of the deeper bowls, if mm-hmm. they did want them mm-hmm. to eat out of, I would put a food safe finish on them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's no chance of upset tummies. <clears throat> Decorative pieces, they've not got a food safe finish. But if you wanted to put it on your bedside table and put your earrings and rings yeah, on it at night, yeah. feel free. Yeah. And, you know, over the years, it might get some scratches and things like that. But if you apply the 
polish and you know some good quality beeswax polish over the years it'll just take on another <coughs> another uh, life of its own and it'll develop some character and age and wear and you know over the decades you know it'll end up yeah being sort of like completely unique again in a different way but no i i want people to it's in, yeah it's entirely up to them if they want to just put it on the sideboard and look at it and get pleasure from looking at it that's fine i have no problems with people chucking car keys in them yeah, or whatever yeah. you own it do what you want yeah. i've had i've had my fun you know creating it and now it's your time to you know it's the the new owner the custodian it's their time and you know these things will outlive us yeah absolutely so tell us about some of the commission pieces and projects that you've been working on well, I've I've had commissions from all over the world. I've been lucky, you know, I could do with some more. Being a struggling artist, we could all do with some more work. <laughs> uh, but I've had, yeah, I've had commissions from all over the world. I've made fountain pens that have gone to New Zealand, bowls that have gone to America and stuff all the way in between. And in fact, what I'm going to just let you feel here now is a commission I've had in the past couple of weeks. So they, they're engraved with the person they're going to. No way. Yeah. And the name is Jay Osmond. Yes, yeah, so uh, a woman who knows the Osmonds, she's meeting up with them uh, at the end of August and she, she found out about me and thought my story was so inspiring and a couple of the elder Osmond brothers are hearing impaired, so she thought there was a nice ah, link there. Yeah, yeah. So uh, she, Jay Osmond is the drummer of the Osmonds. Yeah. Uh, so she commissioned a pair of drumsticks, so I've turned the drumsticks out of ash and they're the same length and diameter as the sticks he used. I hope he has these just as nice commemorative pieces. But if he wants to hit the skins with them, he can. But, yeah, that's a pair of custom-made drumsticks that are going to Jay Osmond at the end of August. So Amazing. things like that. And Amazing. It, so it's mind-blowing, absolutely mind-blowing. What's your favourite? What do you like to do? I really like making pens and fountain pens. That's that's very addictive, making pens. I love doing... I like all of it, you know. Mm-hmm. And some of some woods are, can be challenging uh, and very tough, like, you know, a piece of lead wood or ebony or a really tough piece of oak or ash, you know, and they can put up a fight. And I enjoy that. And then, you know, you can get a piece of wood and it's like turning butter. Mm-hmm. It's so smooth. The, mm-hmm. the project goes so quickly and... You know, you can whiz through it and it's like, wow, and I enjoy that too. And it's like, I love all of it. I really am hooked. You're making me want to have a go. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> got three layers in the workshop. <laughs> Obviously, at the end, we'll, we'll go through your details, but people mm. can get in touch with you if they're interested in commissions. Yeah, yeah, commissions and also if they want to give it a go. You know, yeah. I teach as well. Okay. You know, and that's part of the, again, the assessment. <clears throat> the, uh, the assessor makes sure that you are set up to teach and you have all the legal requirements in place as well. Mm. So in terms of, you know, those professional experiences that you're able to share, that's mm-hmm. now, as a professional turner, that's mm-hmm. now one of the, the key things that you do. Commissions are great, but a lot of my time now is spent demonstrating up and around the country, not only for the company that sponsor me, but also wood turning clubs. Yeah. So there's that, and then I have taught, mm-hmm. and now I've got my accreditation and the letters after my name. Hopefully mm-hmm. a few more people will realise that, it's not such a gamble going to learn something from a, a blind guy. Mm. You know, I'm not messing around at this. I'm very serious, yeah, very passionate and highly skilled. I can see that. So come and spend the day with me. Mm. If You know, whether or not you're a complete rookie or you're experienced and you want to spend the day with me and 
listen to how I work and a lot of people that have spent the day with me now use their sense of touch and their hearing a lot more now in what they're turning mm-hmm. and it's making it a, a more intimate process for them mm-hmm. and their turning is becoming better. Incredible, incredible. Mm. You, you say that life is still full of challenges and that this is what fuels you. Mm. Tell us a bit more about that. Well, my life is just one long challenge and that's everything from finding something to wear mm-hmm. to, you know, making a cup of tea in the morning to going to the shop to going into the workshop and it's everything, every single second of my life is a challenge and it's it's all about just getting on with it and being pragmatic is that mentally exhausting yeah yeah now uh nicola will laugh when she hears this podcast (laughs) but uh the the technical term is concentration fatigue right everyone gets mentally weary but uh there's, there's so much that I do, and nearly everything that I do is, like I say, a, a, a considered mental process. A couple of times a week, I have to have an afternoon nap, and mm. that's because I'm my brain is mush. Mm. Yeah, it's just everything that you take for granted, mm. I have to think about. It was obviously a lot harder in the early days because you're counting everything and trying to remember how many steps it was to that door and how many steps it is to that cabinet there and things, but everything I do, it's a challenge. But I enjoy it as well because, uh, like most people that are creative and pragmatic, uh, and even academics, mm. you know, if you're a mathematician or a teacher or whatever, you, you're presented with that problem and you work that problem through and you come up with a solution. Mm. And when you really get it nailed and you can proceed to the next step, it's almost euphoric. Mm. It's interesting that you use the words creativity and, and pragmatism. I think th- this is a topic that actually comes up quite a lot, mm. particularly with people of our kind of age. I think that personally for me, and I know I've mentioned this in an earlier podcast, there's been an understanding or a misunderstanding, I should say, that artists being artistic and being creative is one and the same thing. Mm. But actually they're so distinctly mm. different you know, you talk about being creative, mm. but actually you're very artistic as well at the same time, whilst mm. also being pragmatic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, yeah, it's a good point. And so many people are all of those. And there's a lot of people that are just one of them. And mm. I know a lot of people that are very, very clever mm-hmm. and they have no common sense at all. <laughs> and they they couldn't solve a problem if their life depended on it. But they could, they could have been to Cambridge for four <laughs> years doing, you know, and they might have, you know. I, so, I don't profess to be even clever, but my husband swears blind. If I haven't have met him, I'd have killed myself by accident by now. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but I am, I am pragmatic, very practical, and always have been and always will be. But, yeah, I'm creative. And, so, I mean, some people, they, they're scared to call themselves artists, but... I, I, you know, that's, I think I am an artist mm. and I have got this inner feeling of what feels right mm. and trying to get the form. And again, the the assessors are checking this to get your accreditation, you know, the, the forms 
well executed, the precise and the finishes there, and you know it, they follow these things like the Fibonacci sequence and things yeah, like this, you yeah. know, and the ratio of thirds, and yeah. you know they're taking all of that into account. Yeah. And although I couldn't see my assessor, is feeling all of my pieces, writing notes about them, photographing them because yeah. I have to go back to London, wow, to, to be further assessed by the committee. Skinner's Hall, which is a guild hall in London. So incredibly rigorous. Yeah, and, you know, your practical part of the accreditation, he's videoing that. Wow. So, so you, you actually, you had to demonstrate your skills yeah. in front of him. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, I, you know, you have there's a, a practical component and also he's checking the workshop that it's COSH compliant. Yeah, of course. You know, that you've got all the PPE, uh, fire exit signs, fire yeah. extinguishers, first aid kits, you know, in case you have yeah. public liability. Yeah, yeah. All this sort of stuff. Because if you're a professional, these standards now, which are very high and uh, that have existed mm. for centuries, they, they want to maintain them and also evolve. Well, congratulations for passing. Yeah. How important is it to you to motivate other people? Hugely important. That's why I started my YouTube channel. Okay. I'd been through the mill. I wanted to do my, and it, it's, it sounds really, really tongue-in-cheek to say, oh, yeah, I wanted to give something back. So I will refrain from saying that. I just thought it was really important to give people a nudge mm. and be, being able to empathise with people. Uh, sympathy is not always a great thing and it's all oh, there there it'll be all right let me help you mm-hmm. that isn't in my opinion any good to anybody they need a nudge mm-hmm. they need empathy and they need support what do you mean by a nudge just, just get on with it what are you bloody moaning for mm-hmm. you, you, you're not going to accomplish anything if you if you make somebody do everything for you and you'll feel better about yourself by giving it your best go mm. and you're going to have to dig deep and deeper than you ever thought possible mm-hmm. but anybody can do it absolutely anybody so the youtube channel was set up to share my journey inspire people and you know really what people say is well if that blind guy there can do it what's my excuse and you haven't got one stop making excuses Fantastic. but ask for the help if you need it mm. Please ask for the help. That's really important. You now travel the UK giving talks and demonstrations, and I actually read somewhere that you're even telling your story at this year's Shed of the Year Awards Dinner, hosted by the UK Men's Shed Association. Mm -hmm. That would make my husband go weak at the knees. Yes, many sheds. This is a man who I have caught reading the Screwfix catalogue as bedtime reading. Well, just before I talk about the uh, the Shed Awards, one thing I missed the most about being blind, reading on the toilet. <laughs> that sanctuary, that, 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 that bastion of male sanctuary has been taken away from me and it does not have the same effect with an audio book because everyone else can hear it. I would love to sit and read the Screwfix catalogue in the bathroom can't do it anymore oh damn this blindness so yeah tell him tell him you keep on doing it what's your husband called alan alan you go for it mate you read away on that toilet and in your shed so uh where do you see yourself going with your public speaking well i'd love to be asked to keynote speak at events and you know sharing my story and of course you know getting paid for it Mm -hmm. because 
blind or not, it's still going to pay the bills and put food on the table. But yeah, hopefully, you know, getting some more bookings for public speaking and sharing my experiences and inspiring people through that public speaking. I did speak a couple of weeks ago at a a ladies' group in Ashton Underline. Mm -hmm. Went very well. They really, really did love it. And talking at the the sheds, men in sheds, shed fest, (coughs) whatever you want to call it, in (laughs) September, it's going to be great. There's a lot of people there that are overcoming, you know, life issues and their own problems by getting into their workshops or being makers and creators and when you're in your workshop and you're working on a project, you're not worrying about anything else. Yeah. So, yeah, it's 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 a great honour to be able to speak there. And also they've asked me to demonstrate. So I will be firing up my lathe and hopefully doing a little project for the guys. Brilliant. Well, if people want to get hold of you, we'll, we'll go through your contact details in a moment. Hmm. Be- before we finish, I always ask my podcast guests, what three pieces of advice would you like to share with the listeners? Three pieces of advice. Uh, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much room. <laughs> which I like. And that's a quote by someone called Jim Whittaker. Uh, advice. Please, 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 never, never give up. Believe in yourself. Mm. Stay passionate. Find time to have fun and be silly every day. And when I say be silly, it doesn't mean go running across the motorway. The people listening to this will know what I mean. Find time to be silly mm-hmm. every day. If that means going into your car on your lunch break from work and putting on your favourite Britney Spears track <laughs> and rocking out to it, and is that if that's your definition of silly, do it. And then you can go back into work saying, I really enjoyed that mad hour in the car. <laughs> so, yeah, best bits of advice, yeah. Never give up. Find time to act silly every day. And... I suppose, don't be afraid to ask for help. Wise words, Chris, wise, wise words. Thank you so much for agreeing to be one of my very first guests because, you know, as we discussed at the start, you know, you are far more a pro at this than I am. Where can listeners find out a little bit more about you? Twitter, at Blindwood Turner. Uh, You've got my website, theblindwoodturner.co.uk, Instagram, Facebook, the Blindwood Turner uh, and YouTube, The Blindwood Turner. Great. We'll make sure that all of the details are in the show notes below where people are downloading their podcast from. But Chris, thank you so, so much. It has been an absolute pleasure and a privilege and a tremendous insight as well into your life. Thank you very, very much for sharing. Thank you so very much, Holly. It's been an absolute honour to be on your one of your first podcasts and uh, I, I think you're going to do absolutely amazing with it and I, I think you're a natural <laughs> so I really do and yeah I think you've you've got a great a great podcast there so great well it's me speaking to people like you Chris so thank you very very much no thank you Chris's story is about truth honesty and the power and importance of human spirit Whilst what happened to Chris is extreme and incredibly rare, thankfully, we can all nonetheless learn a great deal from the candid way that he shared his story of how he copes in the face of such challenges and at times vulnerability. Many of us have bad days, sometimes for days, weeks, even months and years on end, and there is no magic wand, but things can get better. 
In his honest, humbling and humorous way, Chris shared with us how it is possible to go from feeling scared, exposed and even questioning our life purpose to a place of happiness, positivity and empowerment. You can come through even the worst of days, says Chris. We all need to cultivate that warrior attitude that he speaks of within ourselves. This determination can take you anywhere. And as Chris says, we all need to believe in ourselves, stay passionate and be a little bit silly every day. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Rediscovery of Me Life Stories podcast and that in some way it's added value to your life. Thank you for joining me. I've been your host, Holly Hartley. Please make sure that you tell everyone you know who might benefit from listening all about the Life Stories podcast. It is, of course, free to listen to on any app that supports podcasts. Make sure that you click like and leave a review. I'll see you, you amazing person, on the next edition of the Rediscovery of Me Life Stories podcast. Remember, one person's story can be someone else's survival guide. You are enough.